0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everyone. If you are new to Harvest, my name is Dave, and I serve as lead pastor here. You've already heard and seen a lot this morning. I hope that you will hold out for another 30 minutes and give me as much of your attention as you can, we want to look into the book of 1 Timothy this morning. And if you're joining us for the first time, if we get that first slide up, we're we're just kicking off a new series called Life on Life. I love this picture because it's like two guys pedaling really hard in the same direction. They're working for the same goal, but the important thing is they're not just out for a Sunday stroll. They're going for it. And that, I think, is a really beautiful picture of the way life in ministry really ought to work. Um, This, what we're doing here, is good. It's important. It's right to meet together and have a one-to-many communication. But it has always been the case in the kingdom of God that the real spiritual action takes place in a life-on-life setting. It's always been the case that people have grown more from one life investing in another life Than from one voice speaking to thousands. And that's why even Jesus, though he addressed the multitudes, made it his practice to walk very closely with this smaller group of men and extend his influence and impart the best of himself into their lives. And so that's really the spirit of this this, um, series. And we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Timothy, which is the first of two letters which the Apostle Paul wrote to his spiritual protege, Timothy. We're going to look at it through the lens of what a beautiful picture this relationship is of life on life investment and ministry. And so, last week we set the table. and This week we're going to look directly at the text itself. Uh, and the, the title of today's message is "Where did it go?" Uh, where? <laughs> okay, there it is. True family. First Timothy, chapter one, verses one to two. Now, because of the richness and depth of God's Word, you can take any passage of Scripture and approach it from multiple angles, and you can emphasize different things without doing injustice to the text. So as I go through 1 Timothy, there is going to be at least as much I'm not going to say as what I'm going to say, because I'm going to discipline myself to look almost entirely through one lens, and that is the lens of what we can learn from this letter regarding life-on-life ministry, the interpersonal influence of one Christian to have in the life of another Christian. So with that in mind, I'm going to key in on just the first two verses of this letter today. And here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this morning, I'm going to key in on just two words, okay? Uh, and this thing is not working here. This laser pointer is not working, but go back. Um, I'm going to key in on the words, true son, True son. And I want to look at the fact that of all the ways Paul could describe his relationship with Timothy, the way he opens this letter is to tell Timothy, This is who you are to me. You are my true son in the faith. And maybe it's because just this past Thursday we dropped off our oldest at U of I, and I wasn't emotional when we dropped him off, but it hit me afterwards. And I've just been really missing my son. And thinking about how all of my fathering really has come to a close. A real era in our life together has finished now, and he is really taking whatever I was able to impart, and he's entered his own life. And so this idea of fatherhood and sonship is very close to my heart. I think that's an important lens with which to understand the words that Paul wrote to Timothy. So I want to key in on those words, my true son in the faith and I want to make a couple observations about what ministry between Christians really should look like. The first observation I make is there's there's a picture of spiritual reproduction here. Spiritual reproduction. The fact that that Paul refers to Timothy as his son is very telling, okay? It could just be a statement of affection like you you know we often say to somebody you're like a son to me. Meaning, we don't really actually have a family tie, but I really care for you, I love you, I feel protective over you. And so we might say things like, you're like a son to me. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't say, you are like a son to me. He says to Timothy, you are in fact my true son. You are as much every bit to me a son as if I had a wife and we made a baby or we adopted and that kid becomes our son. You are as much a real son to me as that. And that's why he adds the qualifier, you are my true son. It's not a symbolic thing, it's not an analogy. You are in fact my offspring. And we believe that this clearly indicates that Paul is the one who very likely led Timothy to salvation in Christ. That there is a sense in which there was spiritual reproduction that happened, so that in the spiritual realm, Paul is in fact Timothy's daddy. And what's interesting is it's recorded for us when he first meets Timothy as a very young boy. It's recorded for us in Acts 16. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and he wanders into a town called Lystra, and there he meets this young boy Timothy and his family. And here's what it says. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, before I move on to that point, there's a couple things I have to finish saying. This idea of spiritual... Can you guys... I'll, I'll just control from here. Okay? All right. We're <laughs> having a lot of trouble with this thing. Let's just park it here. This idea of spiritual reproduction is interesting because what I see is that at the biological level, there is this nearly universal impulse to have babies, to reproduce. I can't explain it because anybody who's ever had babies or adopted an infant understands. Why did we ever want this? It's so hard. It is so filled with challenge and difficulty that before you get it, all you can think about is, I want a baby, I want a baby. After you get it, you're like, what were we thinking? It is costly. It is a life and a pathway filled with sacrifice sleepless nights, and yet there seems to be this irrepressible drive to do it anyway. And how do we explain this almost universal drive? And then, as if one weren't enough, at Harvest it seems like everybody's going for like three, four, five, six. We're still waiting for our first seven-child family. I think we'll probably cap it at that eight is enough. Um, I think there is this observation that it seems, at least as a general statement, that people are driven to reproduce themselves at a biological level. You can't explain that drive simply by pragmatism or by some um, cost-benefit analysis. It actually, the math doesn't solve, it doesn't equate, if you look at it through that lens. I think here are some similarities between biological reproduction and spiritual reproduction. Um, I, I think biological and spiritual reproduction are both driven by love. In the healthiest sense, it really should be and is most often driven by love. Two people meet each other, and they are so in love with each other, there's such a celebration of that love that it can't be contained in just this relationship. There is like this desire to overflow out of that into another generation. I think in the healthiest settings, reproduction happens, the growth of a family happens, whether by by biological reproduction or adoption, the desire to grow a family is an extension, an outflow of real love. And apart from that, you see a lot of dysfunction in the family that is formed if something other than love motivates the expansion of a family. And so in the same way that parents love each other and want to have children, I believe that when we are in love ...with our Savior, if we are the bride of Christ and he is our bridegroom... ...it is out of the overflow of celebrating love with Jesus... ...that we have any desire to reproduce spiritually. If you've never really felt very enthusiastic about, about evangelism... ...about sharing your faith with others... ...I think the first place to look diagnostically is... ...do you really enjoy a life-giving relationship with Jesus himself? Are you in love with the Savior? Not just relieved to have avoided hell... But are you in love with the Savior? Because I really believe reproduction as an impulse flows out of love. It's also a, a sign that there's so much love, it, I want to give it away. I don't want to just get love. Anytime parents bring children into their family to be loved by their kids, can I just give you a little clue right now, having raised the first one to college in adulthood, you don't have children so that they will love you. That is the most ungratifying experiment in the world. Yeah, they love you okay, but if you had kids because of a desperate need to be loved by them, give up hope right now. They do love you, but they won't justify that motivation. You bring children into your life not to be loved, but to give love. And unless you get that straight, it's going to be a terrible disappointment, and you're going to blame your children for the way you feel. There's also a desire to leave a legacy, to keep my family line going. I can't quite understand at the heart of it why that's so important to us, but we want to leave some people behind that have some of our biological stuff in them, or at least our family DNA. We want to at least say that after I'm gone, somebody will carry my name, carry this family culture, our values and principles, so that I can say, as I die, I will have a child to follow me in this world, someone to give all my leftover stuff to, someone to impart the best of my learnings to. And I think that's definitely a driver of the the desire to expand our families. And I think the same is true in the spiritual realm when we realize the church has always endured throughout the ages because people saw the vision of the kingdom and wanted others after them to join this family to be part of the same legacy, to give others an inheritance that we have received. And let's face it too, babies are awesome. They smell good. They're soft and cuddly. They don't have as black a heart as we do. You know, eventually they they, they catch on really early with this whole sin thing. But I love coming to this church on Sundays because I get my baby fixed. You may notice I avoid adults and I'm seeking out babies. It's not because I'm a creepy dude. I just love babies. They're like little bald balls of innocence. They smell like hope in the future. And I think that when a baby walks in the room, unless you're a sociopath, something in you goes, oh, a baby. If you're like, ew, a baby, something wrong with you. Something's broken inside of you. I think babies represent everything good in life. All the hope, the desire the vision for life, the zeal that maybe has died in us but can still live in another generation. And that's a big part of it is this joy of new life fills us with new life. It can if you're open to it. I think that's one of the great motivators for spiritual reproduction as well. There is something that happens to a church when person after person who was lost and dead in their faith come alive in Jesus Christ. And you watch through their new eyes as they discover these new things of the kingdom, these new treasures which have grown old to you, clouded with age. Maybe your faith, your wonder over the kingdom has gotten this patina over it. But the truth is that in the eyes of a new Christian, a spiritual baby, you see the marvelous kingdom come alive again for you. I think it's wonderful for a church when someone comes to Christ in that congregation and there is spiritual reproduction happening. See, all that to say, I don't think the primary driver of evangelism is a sense of duty, nor is it a sense of ambition. we got to get more people into our side. I don't think those kinds of motivators ultimately lead us to give away our faith. I think the greatest motivation for evangelism has always been the celebration of the new life which Christ makes available to us to be giddy and thankful with joy in our hearts that I once was dead and I am now alive. I was lost to God and he found me. If that joy doesn't flow through us on a regular basis, if it's not renewed, there will never really be an active ministry of spiritual reproduction in your life. And for those whose best days with Jesus are way in the rearview mirror, chances are you have not really shared this gift of eternal life with anyone in a long time. I believe that evangelism is not some pinnacle of Christian experience and ministry. It is the signal to us that there's real life happening inside, that I found a good thing. And can I tell you, almost every one of us is an evangelist for something. For a while, I was the chief unpaid evangelist for Prison Break Season 1. I just wanted everyone who was alive to watch that season. Season 2, 3, and 4 need to be flushed permanently down the toilet of television. But season 1 was glorious. And for a while, I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure it out. People will actually asked me, why are you so agitated for me to watch this? I don't know. I just liked it so much that I want you to enjoy it for the first time. Something good happening to me. Something great which I have found, a treasure I can't hoard all to myself. And that's why if it's always been hard for you to engage in the giving away of your faith, I think one of the places to really check your heart is, are you truly passionate, joyful, thankful for this new life which is ours in Jesus Christ? Let me give you a second observation that flows out of this choice of Paul to refer to Timothy as his true son in the faith. In my experience, there are a lot of parallels between life-on-life ministry, what we might call discipleship, and parenting. In fact, I I think for those men that I have discipled or mentored in the church over the years, it's felt very much like, in some ways, I was re-fathering them. And I don't mean to say that I'm much older or they're very immature. I just mean many of the dynamics of that interaction felt reminiscent of the interactions I had with my own children. When Paul first meets Timothy, it's when when Timothy is probably a very young boy. It's in the city of Lystra, and look at how Paul uh, how that is recorded for us in Acts chapter sixteen, verse one. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. And look how he describes his family: his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. There's a hidden message, I think. It's not explicit. But the faith of the mother is mentioned, but it's only said of the dad, he's a Gentile. He's not one of us. He's an outsider. It's more explicit later in his second letter to Timothy. At the beginning of the second letter to Timothy, Paul fondly remembers the faith that he saw in Timothy's grandmother and his mother. I'm not sure why it's the case, but in so many families I meet, faith lives in the women. And is barely clinging onto the bottom of the men's shoes. I wish that weren't the case, but I see it in case after case after case where the real p- passer along of the faith is the mom and the grandmother. I wish that we would see more men rise up, and it's not too late, men. Will you take responsibility for keeping the fires going in the hearth of your home spiritually? Will you realize that your presence, your intentionality in faith is so critically important to the overall health of your family? And so here, he's remembering, oh man, I totally remember the sincere faith of your grandma Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm also persuaded lives in you. Not a mention of the daddy. What this indicates to me is that while Timothy's dad was physically alive, he was spiritually absent. He was a non-player in the unfolding drama of Timothy's faith. And when kids are made to grow up in a mixed-faith household, it creates all kinds of tension and confusion. Multi-ethnic or mixed-race marriage is not very problematic. But mixed-faith marriages create, wreak all kinds of havoc. The kids are so confused because at the most fundamental level of what is right and wrong, what we believe is true of the world, mom and dad don't see it the same way. And they're both pulling at the kid to see life through their lens. It's a very difficult thing for a child to grow up in a mixed-faith home. Confusing. And when the father especially is spiritually absent, children are left to figure out so many important things without any guidance at all. There are, th- there are things that mothers do that can re- really capably compensate for an absent father. I think women are stronger than men by orders of magnitude. We got bigger muscles, but I think women have always been tougher than us. That's why God gave women the responsibility for having babies. Thank God we would never be able to do that. We see our buddy go through and we're like, "Uh uh-uh. We ain't never having kids. I love the strength I see in women. But there is a strength that men contribute which cannot be reproduced no matter how faithful and intentional a woman is. And when I see families where the father may be a churchgoer but is spiritually absent, I can't help but see the effects of it on their children. I take a personal interest in getting to know the kids at this church. And in part, my second agenda is trying to get to know the dads. I see in your kids who you are spiritually. I'm not judging you from distance, but it's helping me understand where you are in your faith journey. An absent father spiritually, it leaves a big hole in the lives of his sons and daughters. So That was Timothy's experience. And Paul stepped into that vacuum, reminding us that life-on-life discipleship is, in so many respects, a second chance at family, especially for people who had very difficult relationships with their family of origin. I think a lot of people have less than an ideal relationship with their parents, especially with their dads growing up. A lot of people grow up with very difficult relationships because their father was unavailable spiritually or emotionally, And so they are now left having forged a sense of adulthood without guidance and support, and they're trying to figure all that out. It's especially devastating for boys to grow up with an absent father. In the midst of this, Paul sweeps into young Timothy's life and he says, I know your dad cares for you, but he's not available for you in this very important way. Out of love, let me step in and play that surrogate role because it matters to you that you should see a man love Jesus Christ out in the open in front of your face so you know what faith looks like when a man practices it. And I'll tell you, faith looks very different when it's worn by a man than when it's worn by a woman. It's just very different. As an illustration, a skirt looks really wonderful on a woman, but a, a Scottish man, and only a Scottish man, can get away with a kilt. I will never wear a kilt because you will beat me up if you see me in it. It, A man wears the same thing differently than a woman. And that's why it's so important that Paul stepped into Timothy's life. Now, these two men could not have been more different, okay? They could not have been more different. And if you read between the lines, in the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, if you read between the lines, there are certain things... Paul says to Timothy that if you piece it together, you get a picture of Timothy as, how should we say it, not the most robust fellow. He wasn't the Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, if you know what I mean. He wasn't like the man's man. He was sort of um, more like Eugene from Revenge of the Nerds in the 80s, if you remember. There's little things. Let me give you an example. Um, Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy 4.12, Hey, Tim, don't let people, you got to stop letting people look down on you just because you're so young. And this is 15 years after he met Timothy. So if he met Timothy in his teens, he's already in his mid-20s by this point. He's at least in his 20s. And he's saying, look, maybe like many of us, he looks a lot younger than his age, and so he's having a hard time being taken seriously. All right? I no longer have that problem. But I did for a while. <laughs> And it maybe it may Timothy's struggling because he's now placed in this, tr- in this position of great spiritual leadership, and nobody seems to be taking him seriously. He's very young, which is not a problem in itself, but the people of the church seem to have disrespected him on the basis of his perceived youth. There were enough people in the church saying, look, you're a kid, don't tell me what to do. And as a result, young Timothy was wracked with insecurity over his age thing. And I think a lot of Christian leaders have experienced that. How do I give advice to someone who could be my father? These people look at me, and I'll never be as as old or wise or mature as the other leader. And so I'm always playing second fiddle, and I can't really stand up and speak up with my own voice. And Paul says to young Timothy, don't be insecure. Don't give in to it. You have a legitimate place there. Don't let others despise you for your youth. And then in the second letter, he writes this. Hey, Tim, man, God did not give us a spirit of, everything scares me, I'm so... Stop being like that. You don't need to be. The spirit God gave you, the spirit that flowed through the laying on of hands into you, is a spirit of power, not of timidity. So you get the picture that that was an issue for Timothy. That he was always nervous, always afraid, tense, timid. He would say things like, excuse me, I believe that's my stabler. He's that guy, right? From office space, Milt. He won't assert himself. And it's because he's been beaten up enough, he's afraid to speak up. And Paul says to him, he doesn't just go, hey, speak up, don't be a sissy. He says, look, Timothy, that is not the spirit that lives in you. There is a different spirit coursing through your soul. Unleash that spirit. That's a spirit of God and it's not a spirit of fear. You don't have to give in into fear. He was strengthening Timothy, not just scolding him for being a wuss. He's saying there is a strong spirit already deposited in you. Let him out. And then he even gives a little medicinal advice. Stop drinking just water. It's nice that you don't want to drink alcohol, but you need a little wine, bro. Because you're always getting sick. Have you ever known someone like that, just sickly all the time? You're like, you're sick again? Why don't you just sell your house and rent a permanent room in the hospital. You guys are sick all the time. And it seems to be a, 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 there's a kind of spiritual warfare involved with some of that. But there are people whose immune systems are just shot. And they're always getting sick. And Timothy was that guy. He was constantly, every ailment known to man, how come I have everything? Everything. And so Paul says to Timothy, on top of like maybe a, a weak heart You were given a weak body, too. But even so, every step of the way, Paul meets Timothy at his place of weakness, at a place where he's so different than himself. And he says, I want to speak life and strength and power into your life. These two guys could not have been more different. Paul was everything. Like, Look, he was... He was ambitious, he was strong, he had endurance, he was visionary, he was bold, he was stoned, and then the next week got up and kept talking. He was shipwrecked. You see the the long list of things he endured. Timothy was not those things at all. He was the anti-Paul when Paul found him. And yet over the course of 15 years of investing life on life, of pouring his heart into this weak young man, towards the end of Paul's life, he could legitimately say, it is with, my, with great joy I can say to everyone in the church, Timothy is a suitable stand-in for me. Wherever I want to be there but I can't, I will send Timothy and it will be as good as me being there myself. Look what he writes to the church in Philippi. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. It gives me such peace that I feel like I could say that about my son Noah. That if I die and he's the last one caring for his siblings, I feel like he'll do it with the same heart I would have. It's not like he's just the oldest, but I believe he has really inherited that heart. Maybe his siblings are like raising an eyebrow going, yeah, I'm not sure about that. You just don't know. (laughs) And it's one of those things that it's so joyful, so life-being, because you can't force that on someone. That is a sign of real transformation, When someone can say, I have your heart now, I don't just have your skill set, but the things you care about, the way you care about them, that ownership, that conscientiousness, I have all that, I inherited it from you, you imparted the best of yourself to me, and it's in me now, and others can see it too. What a wonderful statement to take a weak young man and be able to say at the end of his life, I can send you in my stead and sleep a night knowing you will represent me well in this place. Now, as I wrap up this message, let me make a couple of final observations about the historical context because this was a personal letter. Many of Paul's letters were written to a whole church as a, a kind of uh, encapsulation of doctrine, but this letter was written to a person, a friend and protege. And here's the context. Paul, during his missionary journeys, planted a church in Ephesus. And while he planted many churches, he had a very special relationship with the church in Ephesus. And as he was getting ready to leave that church after a very long stay of three and a half years, he he gathered all the elders together and he commissioned them and he said, I leave this church in your capable hands. But he gave them one potent warning. He said, listen, after I leave, false teachers are going to try to damage this work. Be on your guard against them because some of them will come out of your own ranks and they will try to gain a following for themselves. Well, Paul went on from there and went on to do further ministry, was imprisoned in Rome, and after he got out of prison, he came back to Ephesus, and he found to his dismay that his prophecy had come true, that false teachers had risen up in the church at Ephesus, and they had greatly damaged the faith of God's people in that church. Just one false teacher can mess up an entire congregation, cause division, cause doubt, cause all kinds of issues in the spiritual realm. And that's what happened, and so Paul was brokenhearted. And as he returns to Ephesus, the worst part of it is he sees this hot mess in a church he loves, but he cannot stick around. God is calling him to move on to Macedonia, and do you know that feeling when you're like, I need to stay here and deal with this, but I've been called away to this? I know that feeling. I know exactly what he's feeling. And his heart is, I wish I could multiply myself because I can't just walk away from this. He dealt very directly with some of the chief troublemakers. Paul was that that kind of guy. He's like, I'm not going to make my spiritual son, Timothy, do the really hard stuff. He's a little non-confrontational, so the butt-kicking comes down to him. And he took some of these guys aside and he gave them, you know what I'm saying, he opened up a can on these guys. Paul was good at that kind of stuff. And so he dealt with those two guys, especially the real troublemakers. But then he said, look, the worst of it is over, but there's a long road ahead for this church to regain its health. Timothy, I'm leaving you here in charge as I go on to Macedonia. You're, you're going to have a heck of a time here. People are not going to trust you. You're still so young, they're going to disrespect you. I'm putting you in a very difficult leadership situation. It's a, it's a risk. I'm entrusting you with something significant, but I'm going to give it to you, and I think you're ready to handle it. And so that's, a, that's one observation I make that's relevant for both um, our familial parenting as well as spiritual parenting, is that those people you're trying to raise up, you've got to give them some significant responsibilities. You've got to put some trust and faith in them. Even as we were dropping off Noah, we were talking, Jeannie and I, about, like, maybe we should walk with him through all of his classes, through his whole schedule. This is your math building. This is your And part of it was we just wanted to walk down memory lane and see those buildings again, because we both graduated from that school. But part of it is we're like, we've got to take our baby and show him, this is your class, this is where you can have math. And, this. and we're just, at, at the end, we just decided, that's ridiculous. He's a grown man, he's 18. If he can't find his way to class, he shouldn't be in university. <laughs> Doesn't that stand to reason? And what it was, was we needed to be needed. We wanted him to still need us to protect him, but the truth is, at some point, you've got to release you got to let them go. Every parent who lets their kid take the car out solo for the first time, it's like, do you know the feeling? You're just, you're just like this. You, you can't function until they come home. It is so nerve-wracking, but they will never learn to drive if you don't let them go. And so that's one principle of spiritual parenting is you can't always guide, protect, put them behind you. Every now and then, you've got to throw them in front of you and say, look, you're ready for this. It's a risk. This is a more significant responsibility than I've ever given you, but I'm going to see how you do. But there's a difference between giving someone trust and ditching them. Okay? There's a big difference. So here's the difference. You give them significant responsibility. Let them flex their muscles, spread their wings a little, but you make sure they always know you've got their back. It's like a good weightlifting spotter. A good weightlifting spotter says to you, you've got it, it's all you, it's all you, you're doing all the lifting right now, but if, you, if I see your arms turn to spaghetti, I'm right there. A good lifter, a good spotter doesn't actually help you. They wait and let you do the lifting, but when you are about to drop it on your neck, they pick it up. And I think that's at the heart of it is that we let the rope out a little, but we don't ditch them and say, you're on your own now, sayonara. But what we say to them is, I'm watching you and I'm always here. As you run into things, you reach out and I will help you navigate that stuff. I will even proactively offer guidance. You can take it or leave it, but I'm there with you and I'm there for you. But you're doing the lifting yourself now. That's a very big rite of passage. I started studying earnestly for this series about a month ago. And with my son going away to college, I have just decided, like, this whole letter Paul wrote to Timothy in order to guide him through this horrible leadership challenge he'd put him in. And so I've begun this practice every week of writing a letter to my son. And I didn't expect him to write back, but his first response so touched my heart. I almost cried. I didn't. But I almost did. And it's just my way of saying to him, I can't be there with you, but my heart is still there with you all the time. And so I'm just writing him letters. It's almost like a private blog where I just tell him, son, this is just me to you because I know you. I'm just imparting my heart to you, and I'm encouraging you. I'm affirming you. And it's been so good for me. I don't know how it is for him. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be a weekly burden to have to read that thing. But it has been so cathartic for me to be able to still be there for him. But at a distance. And I think that's a necessary rite of passage as we invest in other people's lives. Many of us will hear these words primarily as relevant to our own family situation, and that's a good thing. But I want to conclude by saying, I really want to encourage you to think about this. Do you have spiritual children in this world? Who is the last person with great joy you ushered into the kingdom? Yes, salvation belongs to the Lord. But in the same way that life, the mystery of life, is a a divine spark which we can't reproduce, God still uses people to produce other people. And in the same way, salvation has always belonged to God. But almost in every case, the gift of eternal life was passed along from one person to another. And I want to just invite us to reflect on on when's the last time I had a spiritual child, the last time I spiritually reproduced. And if it's been a while, I want to invite you to think about the nature of your daily relationship with Jesus Christ. I also want to invite you to think about those people. Do you have your own spiritual Timothy? Now, if you're a parent, your children are going to be first in line to get the best of your influence and investment. But I still think it is really good for our souls to have another person, a fellow adult, that is for us like a spiritual Timothy, someone in whose life we are making a conscious investment out of love and selflessness. And if it's been a while since you had that person, if you haven't had a spiritual Paul in a while, I want to tell you that your spiritual experience is not as full as it could be without that component. And I want to encourage you to ask God to give you a spiritual Timothy or a spiritual Paul. I want to challenge you not to sit through the sermon series agreeing with what is said. I'm not that impressed by us agreeing with each other. That agreement is worth so very little without a response in the practical life. And so what I'm asking of you is to respond practically by saying, I want to ask God to give me spiritual children. I want to ask God to give me a mentor who will give me what Paul gave Timothy. And I want to ask God to give me somebody who's a few steps behind me into whose life I could pour the best of myself. God, give me that and make my experience of walking with you fuller because of it. Amen. Don't just be convicted. Ask him to do that in your life. You'll be surprised at the conversations that pop up, the serendipitous encounters that will happen if you begin to ask God directly for those things. So would you just bow with me? I just want to close in prayer and then invite the praise team to lead us in a closing song. But let me just pray for us right now. God, we pray that you would cast off of the churches in our country the dark shadow of spiritual infertility the burden of spiritual barrenness and begin to make us a spiritually reproductive thriving church grant us spiritual children people to whom we have offered in your name the precious gift of real and everlasting life, life that is truly life. Help us to lay hold of that life for ourselves, to be captivated by it, filled with joy over it. And out of the overflow of that life, Lord, put in us a desire to give it away to others. We can't make ourselves want to do that, but we pray that you would begin working in us. And give us that desire. We also pray that you would raise up the temperature in our church in the culture of life-on-life ministry. That those who need a mentor, someone who watches over them, pours into them, that they would not put up with not having it. They would ask you to grant such a person in their life. I pray that you would make supernatural connections between the right people so that they will not walk alone pray for those who have so much to give away into whose life you have poured so much grant them a spiritual Timothy someone in whose life they can pour out the best of what they've received from you we pray not in theory but in the fabric of our real lives you would begin to do this good work in Jesus name amen